Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, People will be forgiven all their sins and all the blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round, and they told him, oh, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So yeah, we're Mark 3, verse 20 to 35. Um, and before we get started, it's really, it's really obvious. As you read through that, there may well be a verse that leaps out, that makes you go, I want to know what that's talking about. I want to assure you, we are going to come to it, we are going to look at it, but we're going to look at it within context. We want to understand it within the flow of the passage rather than just jump to it to sort it out before we get there. Verse 29, in case you're wondering which verse is he talking about, uh, is the verse we're thinking of. So we are going to get to that, um, but we need to understand what's going on in the passage around it so we can understand it properly. And so to start, I want to start by sharing with you that if you know me, you know I quite enjoy films. I quite enjoy films. I always have enjoyed films since I was a child. I enjoy watching them. I really like Disney films, uh, probably more than a man of my age and size should. Uh, but I always remember as a child, I really, really hated those bits in films where it starts to go wrong. Even if you know the happy ending is about to come, that bit where it all gets really, really, it just goes wrong and it all just starts snowballing. And I remember that feeling of just feeling in my stomach of, I don't want it to happen. So the film I think of particularly that is a, a big childhood favorite for many people is Disney's Robin Hood. You know, the Disney Robin Hood with the fox and, and all the animals as the different characters. Great film, lots of kids love it. I have a real like trauma with that film because there's, a, I mean, spoiler alert, it's 50 years old. You should have watched it if you're going to buy now. But there's a bit in the film where everything looks like it's going really well. Marion and Robin are hanging out in the forest. They've all got loads of food and it's great. But then it all kicks off. Friar Tuck gets in a fight with a sheriff in Nottingham. He gets arrested and sentenced to death. All of the people who are sympathetic to Robin Hood are just like locked up in jail or starving. And it's just miserable. And it looks hopeless. And I just remember watching it thinking, no, don't have that fight, ah, and wanting to jump into the TV to make it stop. And even then when re-watching it, I'd still feel that same, oh, I don't want to watch it. So I just don't, I, there's something about Robin Hood, you know, the Odalali, Odalali, golly, what a day one. Um, I just dread it. And I think we start to get hints of that sort of, oh, everything's not quite perfect 
in Mark's Gospel around chapter 3. So we've already seen that there are some people around Jesus who get a bit grumpy and argumentative, but mostly it's been a mission of success so far, hasn't it, for Jesus? People are flocking to him, there's healings left, right, and center, and then last week we saw a little bit about just how big the crowds were that were following Jesus, and then how Jesus wonderfully appoints 12 men, set him apart to be his close followers. And we thought about how that could be stuff to do with uh, the new Israel and God wanting to establish his kingdom on earth in a, in a fresh way. And these guys were set to learn with him, to be with him, to spend time with him, and then to go out and carry on his ministry. But if you noticed at the end of last week's section in verse 19 in Mark chapter 3, a big ominous cloud suddenly appears in that bright sunny sky. Mark lists the name of the 12 men who are following Jesus, and the list ends like this, starting at verse 18. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Ah, that kind of puts a hint of a downer to come, doesn't it? There's going to be some betrayal coming up. That's not as happy and as hopeful as we'd want this bit to be. And aside from that big dark cloud of betrayal that's going to be hanging over the rest of what happens in Mark now, this also raises a really important question. If Judas was one of those 12 set apart by Jesus, was somebody who spent time with Jesus, saw what Jesus did, heard what Jesus said, did some of the stuff Jesus did, if Judas did all of that and still betrayed Jesus, what hope have we got? What hope have we got? How do we know that any interest we might claim to have in Jesus isn't ultimately going to end up that way? How do we know we're not ultimately like him? And that is what this section of Mark, I think, begins to hint at some answers for, and it carries on to help us answer. And to answer it, I think Mark gives us first a warning, and then he gives us an encouragement. So we're going to see them in that order. A warning and encouragement. So the first thing we're going to see is the warning. And the warning is, being around Jesus is not the same as being with Jesus. Being around Jesus is not the same as being with Jesus. So these verses start with Jesus doing what Jesus does. Going somewhere, teaching crowds of people. However, this time it seems it must have been a bit more manic than usual. Because Mark points out that it was so crowded what he was doing that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. We don't know how long they're not able to eat for, but seemingly there's just this mad crowd around them that's taking all of their time up. And then in verse 21, when his family hear about this, whether that's his kind of wider family or just the people that Jesus grew up with, they decide that enough is enough. All of this Jesus fan club has gone too far got far too out of hand. So they went to take charge of him, is what Mark says. Now that word, went to take charge of him, also your version might have the word seize. Uh, whenever it's used anywhere else in Mark, it's talking about arresting. Basically, they go along to try and grab this guy by force and to take him away and to make him stop doing what he's doing. So why do they do that? They're his family. Why do they do that? Well, verse 21, because they think he's lost his mind. This Jesus is clearly not well. All of this has gone a bit too far. So they're going to take him away and get him the treatment that he needs to get rid of this madness he seems to be going through at the moment. His family want Jesus to stop because they think he's mad. 
His family want Jesus to stop because they think he's mad. But they're not alone in wanting Jesus to stop. The teachers of the law in verse 22, they also want Jesus to stop, but not because they think he's mad or they're worried about his mental health. They think he's evil. Verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So they've watched and they've seen and they've heard everything that Jesus is doing, all this healing and the teaching, and they've decided this guy must be evil. Nobody can forgive sins apart from God, and there is no way this guy can be God, no matter what all the evidence seems to say. And for somebody who's not God to claim that he can forgive sins on behalf of God, well, he's clearly lying, so he must be wicked. This guy must be evil. He must be possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Now, loads of theology big brains have written loads about who they're talking about by Beelzebul. I'm not going to go into that here. But Jesus clearly understands what they really mean, right? He knows they're saying that Jesus is working as an agent of Satan to trick people into following him. The teachers of the law want Jesus to stop because they think he's a bad man. The teachers of the law want Jesus to stop because they think he's bad. His wider family think he's mad, The teachers of the law think he's bad. And then the other side of this sandwich that Mark seems to teach in, in verse 31, even Jesus' mum and brothers, when they turn up, they don't understand what's going on either. So whether they think he's mad or bad or just not spending enough time with them, we're not told. But they also want Jesus to stop. So they stand outside this packed house and they send a message for Jesus to come to them and leave all this alone for a bit. And they think Jesus needs to do what they tell him. We're his family. He should be doing what we say. We've got authority over him. He should obey us. But if you think about who it is that is saying this, it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Like this is Jesus' close family. They'd have spent the majority of the last 30 years hanging around with Jesus. They'd have seen far more than we've got written down in the Gospels. They'd have heard his teaching and seen him grow in love and fear of God. Mary went through all of that Christmas stuff we're going to think about in a couple of weeks with angels and shepherds and magi. And yet they still don't get it. They still don't understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And looking at it this week, that's been a real wake-up call and warning to me. I can so often think, ah, this person I know and love who doesn't yet love Jesus... If they just saw some sort of miracle or some kind of incredible sign from God, then surely they believe in Jesus. That's what they need. Then they become a Christian. But the truth is, all of these people in Mark 3 have seen the clearest evidence for who Jesus really is, and yet they come to the wrong conclusion. They decide he must be evil or insane. And that has to be a reminder to us that what our friends need, what our family needs, Or what you need if you're holding out on trusting in Jesus until he gives you a certain sign is not an incredible miracle or an act of God. What we all need is the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is. It's the same Spirit who Jesus was anointed with back in Mark 1, who fuels Jesus' ministry wherever he goes, and who opened the eyes of the people sat at Jesus' feet learning from him, and who moved the disciples to give up everything to follow him. That's what people need. Don't worry. 
They don't need signs and wonders. Signs and wonders will not automatically lead to faith in God. We need to be really clear about that from this passage. And that brings us back to the warning here. Being around Jesus is not the same as being with Jesus. Just hanging around with him doesn't mean you're really with him. His wider family, the teachers of the law, his immediate family, they've all been around Jesus closer than anybody. They've heard him, they've seen him, they've walked with him, they've watched him, and yet they don't get it. Being around Jesus does not mean you're really with Jesus. And so that is a warning call to all of us here today, especially to those of us who've grown up in and around Christian families. Lots of us here have grown up in churches and in Christian families, and we've been to church for years. We've known the gospel since before we could talk. And all of that is an incredible privilege and nothing to be sniffed at. But being around Jesus is not the same as being with Jesus. And it's always worth thinking and being aware of this for our own hearts. And if Sundays or home groups or conferences or Hungerton or youth camps are the only places that we ever really feel Jesus speaking or we really listen to him, then there is a real risk we run that we are people who are around Jesus, but not with Jesus. Because all of these people who should have known the truth instead think he's mad or bad. And you notice they all want him to stop. Whether that's his family or those people who are openly opposed to him, they want him to stop. And that shows the terrifying truth that being around Jesus while not being with Jesus is the same as being against Jesus. Being around Jesus while not being with Jesus is the same as being against Jesus. No matter who you say Jesus is, whether you say he's mad or bad or a good guy you quite like, if you're not with him, you're against him. And so it's really important that we think about that regularly. Where are we all today? We're all here on a Sunday morning, obviously, we're here now. And we could be any number of places, that's a really good thing to be doing, but it's always worth asking God to search our hearts, to doing that with the people that we know and love and trust around us, to search our own hearts and lives, to see if there is a chance that we're people who are around Jesus without being really with him. However, that raises the question, doesn't it? If it's possible to be around Jesus and not be with Jesus, what does being with Jesus look like? What does it mean to be with Jesus? Who can be with Jesus? And that's where the encouragement from this passage comes in. So the warning is that being around Jesus isn't the same as being with Jesus. But the encouragement is that anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness, learns from him, and obeys him. Anyone can be with Jesus So in verse 23, Jesus calls these teachers of the law to come to him. And you can imagine the scene, can't you? They're they're trying to squeeze their way and push their way through this massive crowd of people. If anyone's been to a gig or a busy train station or just a, a manic school hall or a sports concert, you can imagine what this is like, trying to squeeze your way through to get somewhere. And then when they get to the front, probably in full view of everybody, Jesus starts to answer their concerns using parables. And he starts with a question. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan. 
You say that I'm working on behalf of Satan. How on earth can Satan be destroying himself? You've seen what I've been doing. I've been removing evil spirits and healing sicknesses and diseases like you've never seen. Do you really believe that I'm doing what Satan wants, making healthy, happy humans? Of course not. So how can Satan drive out Satan? The answer is, he can't. Because if he was doing it all with Satan's power, how on earth could Satan's kingdom survive at all? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. To put it in a slightly more contemporary way, if players on one football team are playing against each other, there's no way that team can do anything but lose. The World Cup kicks off in a couple of months, it's less than a month, isn't it now? Imagine at the World Cup, Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling decide that instead in their opening match, they don't want to play for England, they want to play for Iran. And they start tackling their own players and they start trying to score past their own goalkeeper. Are England going to win that match? It's not a rhetorical question. Are England going to win that match? No, of course not. Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I didn't choose Wales. <clears throat> But of course not. If they're not playing on the same team, if they're playing against each other, that team can't win. And in the same way, Jesus says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. He says, if you really think I'm evil and working on behalf of Satan, then you should be rejoicing because Satan's kingdom is over. It's finished. However, what he also says is, you're also clearly a bit stupid. Because you know that's the truth, guys. And you know the reality of verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now, I love this verse. And whenever I read this verse, I think of one man. This guy. Does anyone know who this is? Duncan Ferguson, well done. He is, uh, he's a footballer, or was a footballer. He's now around Everton somewhere. He played for Everton and Newcastle in the 90s and noughties. And he is one of the hardest, scariest footballers you will ever hear about. So in his Premier League career, he got sent off eight times, which is the joint most of all anyone in the Premier League up to this date. He also, one of his earlier matches playing in Scotland, he got a three-month prison sentence for headbutting another player in a match. Uh, when he played for Newcastle, the manager, Rude Hullett, blamed Duncan Ferguson for a match they lost in a press conference afterwards. And the next day, Duncan Ferguson kicked Rude Hullett's doors off its hinges, screamed and shouted and yelled at Rude Hullett, who eventually quit that afternoon. <laughs> he is, he's insane. He's incredibly strong, incredibly hard. But the reason I think of him is because in 2001, two very clever chaps decided to rob his house. Unluckily for them, Duncan Ferguson was home. And one of them got away. The other one, Duncan Ferguson, grabbed by the neck, tied up in a chair, ate his tea, and then rang the police. <laughs> the man is a Fruit Loop. He is insane. What makes that more unbelievable is that the same thing happened again two years later. Evidently, if you want to rob Duncan Ferguson's house, you're going to have to tie him up first. <laughs> Only then are you going to be able to do it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Satan is a strong man. He has got power. And yet you are seeing Jesus, he says to these guys, overcome his power in the world. And for anyone to be able to do what Jesus is doing to the household of Satan, well, first they must have had to tie Satan up to defeat and overpower Satan himself. 
And so Jesus is saying the fact that I'm able to do all this damage to Satan's kingdom, all this healing, this removing demons and these evil spirits, and talking about forgiveness the way that I am, is because Jesus is in fact stronger than the strong man. He's already bound the strong man up. Satan is not a subdued strong man. Sorry, Satan is a subdued strong man, not a self-saboteur. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, Jesus is saying that he isn't mad, he isn't bad, he really is God. He really is that serpent crusher that God promised would undo all the works of the devil back in Genesis 3. He really has come to defeat the strong man once and for all. And that is good news, right? And this good news gets even better. Because have a look at verse 28. It starts with the phrase, truly I tell you. Now, heads up here, whenever you see the phrase truly I tell you, particularly in Mark's gospel, Jesus is about to say something really important. So pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. This is vital stuff here. And here's what he says. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. That's good news, right? That is the best news. I can't think of a single sin that doesn't fit into those categories. All sins and every slander. So that's all sins of the heart and the mind and the stuff we do and every bad thing we might say. That's everything, right? There's not a sin that isn't encapsulated by all sins and every slander. What Jesus is saying that because he's defeated this strong man, come to him and he can and will forgive every wrong we could ever do and ever have done. As we say often here at Avenue, there is more forgiveness in Jesus than there is sin in us. There's more forgiveness in Jesus than there is sin in us. No sickness, sin, selfishness or slander can stop him from welcoming us to himself. Anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness. And it's important we see that because this is where verse 29 comes in. Verse 28 and 29, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And verse 29 does have the potential to cause us a fair bit of worry, doesn't it? It's a scary thought that there is a sin that can never be forgiven. And I've heard this explained in the past as meaning that anyone who resists the Holy Spirit's work in their lives has committed the unforgivable sin. They will never have forgiveness. And loads and loads of people have worried as a result of that that they've committed this unforgivable sin because they've resisted God's prompting in one area of their lives. I've met people who've been convinced of this. During the height of my depression, I believed this. But I want to reassure anyone who might feel that today, the very fact you're worrying about this is proof you haven't committed this sin. One old dead theologian called Charles Cranfield said it like this, we can say with absolute confidence to anyone who's overwhelmed by the fear that he or she has committed this sin, that the fact that he or she is so troubled is itself a sure proof that he or she has not committed this sin. Because in verse 29, Jesus, who's he speaking to specifically? Well, it's the Jewish leaders, isn't it? The Jewish teachers of the law, the religious bigwigs, who've been saying that he's possessed by Satan. That's what verse 30 tells us, is why he's saying it. He has an impure spirit and that he's evil. And to put in verse 29 with verse 30 after verse 28, 
we can see that this unforgivable sin, this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, is saying that the work of Jesus is the work of Satan. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is saying that the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of uh, the work of Jesus, is actually the ministry and the work of Satan. It's saying something that's really good is actually really evil. That's what these teachers of the law were doing, isn't it? But even more incredibly, the fact that Jesus is alerting them to this truth is in itself a merciful, generous gospel call to these guys. And we know that because likely among these guys, or at least friends with them, was somebody who would go on to actively hunt down and kill Jesus' followers in years to come, but who gets saved by God and wrote most of our New Testament, the Apostle Paul. So we have to remember verse 29 comes after verse 28 and is directly speaking about people saying a certain thing about Jesus. And the truth that while people are still alive, there is always forgiveness for every sin and every slander anyone can utter. And so I want to reassure anyone here, especially if you're worrying about this particularly, while you are still alive, there is always, always eternal forgiveness on offer to you, no matter how bad you might get or might feel. This unforgivable sin, this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, is calling the work of Jesus is actually the work of Satan, and doing that until you die, because then it will be too late. And so worrying about whether you've committed this sin, this sin or not is one of the strongest signs that you haven't. And remember, Jesus himself says people can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander they utter. There is more forgiveness in God than there is sin in you or me. And that is great news, isn't it? especially if we want to be sure we are with Jesus, not just around him. Because those who are with Jesus are those who've had their sins forgiven, and anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness. And I love the fact that in verse uh, 22, Jesus calls these teachers of the law to come and be with him. Even these guys who are saying he's evil are not out of the reach of this offer of forgiveness. But also, somebody who's been forgiven will also do what these guys sat around Jesus are doing. They will learn from him, and they'll want to obey him. Learning from Jesus, listening to him and obeying him, is what his real followers do. And we see that in verse 31 onwards. So Mary and her other sons arrive, and Jesus is told, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says something extraordinary. Who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here and my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And to the family Jesus came for, the people who are really with Jesus are those who regularly sit at his feet, who learn from him, and who obey, who obey what he teaches. And obeying with the Holy Spirit's help, the joy of what Jesus has done is we're now free to obey Jesus wherever he calls us. Jesus' followers his disciples, his new family, those who are really with him are those who learn from him and obey what he tells us to do wholeheartedly. His people are sat at his feet. We're not called as Christians primarily to do things for Jesus, but to learn from him first and then obey him. 
listening to him, sitting at his feet, learning God's will and doing what that is. That is what it looks like to be with Jesus, to be part of his new family. It's to come to him for forgiveness, to learn from him, and then with the power of the Holy Spirit to obey what he teaches through his word. Obedience of Jesus is a clear sign of being with Jesus. Obedience of Jesus is a clear sign of being with him, even when that costs. In fact, probably more when that costs and is hard. It's one of the greatest evidences we have of being with him. See, if we only obey Jesus when it's easy to do so, then the minute it's hard to do that, we don't. It's not really obedience, is it? Or if we only obey Jesus when we agree with what he's telling us, well, we're not really obeying him then, are we? We're only obeying us, what we like. Jesus says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. There is no one Jesus doesn't call to come to him for forgiveness. Anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness, learns from him, and obeys him. But no one can be with him who doesn't or won't do that. And we see that in the fact that these teachers of the law just harden their heart throughout the rest of Mark. And obeying Jesus means carrying on Jesus' mission in the world today. Our job, our role as people who are with him is to be with him, to learn from him, but then to obey him by going out into the world to call people to come to Jesus for themselves. That's what a disciple looks like. Learning from Jesus, obeying him, calling more to come and obey him too. And that might make us look crazy. We need to be aware of that. That might make us look completely mad to people around us. If we follow Jesus and people call him mad, well, surely they should be calling us mad, right? And if our life always makes sense to people who don't know Jesus, if every decision we make about our time or our money or our energy makes sense to the world around us, then it's worth asking how closely are we really following him. And we need to remember we go to anyone. Anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness and learns from him and obeys him. And that also encouragingly means anyone we know and love who doesn't yet know Jesus for themselves. Anyone, no matter how hardened or currently against him they seem. Again, look at the Apostle Paul. Anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness and learns from him. So if you're wrestling in prayer for somebody, if your heart is broken for somebody who just seems so hard to the gospel, remember what they need is not signs and wonders. That won't guarantee salvation. They need the Holy Spirit. So pray, pray for that, and then keep sharing Jesus with them naturally, honestly, faithfully, confident that anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness. Because we get the incredible privilege of going out on Jesus' behalf and calling more people to come to him. So in these verses, we get a warning and an encouragement. Firstly, we get warned that being around Jesus is not the same as being with him. And it's always worth looking at ourselves to see where we are in relation to him. But wonderfully, anyone can be with Jesus who comes to him for forgiveness, learns from him, and obeys him. And anyone here can come to Jesus confident in his forgiveness and his welcome, confident that we can learn from him, that he wants to teach us through his word, through times together, through your friendships with each other, and confident that he fills us with the Holy Spirit to go out and obey him wherever that is, knowing that he is with us too. And that is really, really good news, isn't it? Thanks.